Amen. Guys, so glad to see you. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope. Today we're going to be in the book of Galatians chapter 4. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and turn or tap your way there. If not, let us give you one. We'd love for you to read the Bible in a modern English translation. There's several that are great. We use the ESV here, but feel free to use whatever. I think most of them you can kind of read at the same time. As we think about Orphan Sunday, one of those where it's like you're weird to be excited about Orphan Sunday, but thinking through some of the themes of Orphan Sunday really are exciting. I walk away from it challenged, yes, sad, sure, but blessed. And I want to get you there so that we can together receive that challenge, not as a defeat, one more thing that we should do but don't but receive it with joy at the opportunity. Specifically, understanding what kind of is the foundation for this theme that runs Genesis to Revelation of adoption. And I hope to, to just open your eyes a little bit to what's going on. Let's, let's see it together. We've read already, but I want to read it again. James 1, 26 and 27 says, If anyone thinks he is religious and doesn't bridle his tongue... He deceives his heart. A person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding about a command like this because there's a lot of misunderstanding of a book like James. James was a book that was written by a guy who was half-brother of Jesus. So Jesus lived, and if you uh, know anything about uh, the Christian religion, the history of Jesus, he was born to Mary, but at the time, we, we call her the Virgin Mary, or the, the Catholics like to really harp on that, but the Virgin Mary, she was a virgin when she conceived Jesus, gave birth to Jesus, however, married to this guy, Joseph. So she has Jesus, and then she and Joseph have other kids, one of them being James, James, Jesus' half-brother. And you can think about it also as adoption. We don't have time to kind of tap into it, but just another place where the, the story connects with that theme, Jesus being adopted by Joseph. But this guy, half-brother of Jesus, James, Jude, who wrote, writes the book of Jude towards the end of the New Testament, another one of Jesus' half-brothers, James, doesn't actually believe in Jesus during his ministry. There's the story of Jesus' mother and brothers coming to try and get him from this wild ministry that seems to have built up around him, this idea that he's a prophet and maybe something more, because they didn't believe. And yet, there's some kind of transformation that takes place probably around the death and resurrection of his brother that makes James realize, wait a minute, maybe what he was saying was true. James not only becomes a follower of Jesus, but a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And he writes this letter in the New Testament. And if you just read through the New Testament, this book of James sticks out. And that's part of the reason that I've got 26 and 27 up there, is I want you to get a little bit of a feel for how this book runs. It's not just a letter from a pastor to a church. It's structured a lot more like the book of Proverbs from the Old Testament. So I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but as you read through it, you just get proverb after proverb after proverb. And what these proverbs are is some sort of encapsulizing, some sort of bite-sized making of eternal wisdom. Something that's absolutely true, and that's seen as you look out over the world and start to notice the patterns, start to notice the repetition. 
and they put it into like a little pithy sentence, a little pithy phrase that you can take, hide in your mind, hide in your heart, and then start to live and see as it just explodes in manifold meaning, as it, it relates to all these different places in your life, you become wise. Well, you step into the New Testament, and now this book of James is written with that much more of the revelation of God through Jesus Christ. God's the same. There's nothing that's contradicted by the Old Testament in the New. And yet, in Jesus, we now, through James, get this other version of a sort of proverb. And in the same sense as the Old Testament, we have this idea that there's something deeper than maybe what you read if you just read this verse. Pure and undefiled religion before God is this. Visit orphans and widows, keep yourself unstained from the world. And there's a type of us, I'd say a type of person, but it's all of us, who then takes a verse like that and says, oh, good, finally. Here's the one rule. If I can do this, then I'm good. That this is somehow a recipe for godliness. Just an instruction. It's just a recipe. You just follow these steps. And if you follow steps correctly... You get cookies. If you follow steps incorrectly, you get this weird sort of burned puddle that comes out of your oven. If you don't, do it right. But that's not what this is. This is truth that's based on all the other truth that we have in Scripture. It is like a proverb, but the foundation is deep, deep, deep. You look at Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and it's very interesting if you read through James and read through the Sermon on the Mount to see how much of James's teaching is built directly on Jesus' teaching. And in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, so, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, so, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Have you heard anything like that before? called the golden rule. It's kind of popular. People throw it out all the time. And Jesus is using it in a pretty pervasive way. He says, for this is the law and the prophets. There's something about understanding how you want to be treated and then treating others in that way that creates a, a, a prism, a, a way of seeing how you should act wisely in every situation. Here's the problem with the golden rule. Or... Here's the opportunity that the gospel informs in the golden rule that explodes with meaning and changes the way that our understanding of the gospel and the one we're going to get into in Galatians 4 changes how a lot of people read James in James chapter 1. If I say treat others the way you want to be treated, I'm actually now asking you to either... Be incredibly wise or really just use that for super easy, obvious stuff. Here's what I mean by that. The golden rule works when it comes to how I open the door on my car when it's windy. Last night, Habit Burger parking lot, it was windy. And the guy next to me, when he got out, opened his car door, the wind took it and smacked it into my car door. That was awful. I don't know. It's not an exciting thing. That was a sad thing, and it was a frustrating thing. It was only made lighter by the fact that I got to, up to like get out of the car and see. And Rachel went, "Oh no, Ben, don't." 
if you know me, it's hilarious that she thought, what, I'm going to start fighting this guy or what she thought I was going to do, <laughs> put his head into the door or something. I don't know what she was expecting me to do other than to go, oh, gee, hum, yeah, looks like you did a little damage to my car there. Maybe we could get the insurance man, you know, what she thought I was going to do. That painful experience, though, created for me a rule. When it's windy, I need to open my door carefully. Because I don't want to do to somebody else what this person did to me. Like David saying today, I thought that was so good about other more strong words for 2020. Hey, you take a hike 2020, hashtag, yeah. No, like this person did to me. That's a very simple, obvious, moral calculus. I can do that pretty easy. But what about when you go way bigger, when you go way higher, like... Not how do I treat your car door, but how do I treat your heart? How do I act towards you as a person? Well, now if I say how I want to be treated, you're now assuming that I know what's best for myself. But is that legitimate? 35, I'm just now starting to understand what a healthy way to eat is. I don't know what's best for myself. Cake after eight? Yeah, that sounds great for myself. I'll take two. But it's not what's best for myself. I need to grow in wisdom. But again, go even further and say, the basic way I understand what's best for myself, the basic way I understand how I can get along in the world, is it what I want to give to other people? Man, I I think that we're going to run into some big problems there. What happens is you start to say, I'm going to hand other people what I think is best, but what I think is best may be bad. We always talk about a distinction between gospel and religion. We talk about it every week that we can. We certainly try to give every person that comes to Hope Church a card that has examples of the distinctions between the gospel and religion. And part of why we're doing that is because most of the time when you think to yourself, what's the best way for me to live, you start to write out a series of prescriptions, a series of rules. You say to yourself, I'm going to live better. I want to do better. I want to be better. And so I'm going to create this ideal version of myself and try as hard as I can to be that. People assume Christianity is just a way of living. That Jesus showed us this perfect way to live and that we all get together and congratulate ourselves on how well we are following Jesus' example. But, of course, not. That idea could underline James, but the Bible doesn't leave us that option. Galatians chapter 4, let's get into it finally. In Galatians chapter 4, we get this expression of the gospel that fits perfectly with what we see in James chapter 1. And it's exciting to preach on both of these things because people often try and set up James against Galatians as though James is religion, Galatians is gospel. But let me show you, they, they fit together perfectly because Galatians says, this is how God has treated us. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What I'm saying is that if we want golden rule, we don't need to just hand other people what we think is best. We actually need to give other people what we know to be best, the way that God has treated us. If we're going to apply the golden rule and say we're going to go out and show orphans how we want to be treated, we're not just showing them what we think is best. We're showing them what God has done towards us as orphans. Because biblically, you are an orphan. I don't know if you feel that way. I don't know if you think about it that way. But your relationship towards God begins with you as an orphan, separated from Him. This is how Ephesians says it. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, you can have moms and dads, plural. But if this is your spiritual state, then the Bible is calling you an orphan. You're separated from the love, protection, God-like God relationship with God. He's supposed to be your father. He's supposed to be the one that's connected to you. And yet, in our sin, we are separated, alienated, orphaned. What's so exciting, though, is now as we study this, as we understand it and start to understand it deeply, we can not only impact the orphan community in a way that God actually wants us to do it, but we can impact the orphan community spiritually, the people who have moms and dads but are no way connected to God or His people. We have to see it. We have to understand it. We don't want to any longer live as orphans. We want to be connected again to God. And the way I want us to think about it is I want us to go hard in the other direction. I want us to have a clear picture of what it is to be a spiritual orphan. I had the pleasure of having a couple of conversations this past week with two different men who each have sort of different brands of non-relationship with God. They're both separated from God, and I think they would say that. But they would describe it in very different ways. Their experience is very different. And I want you to see it because I think they both example well how our society lives as orphans to God. And you are, in fact, a member of, and probably greater than you think, a product of this society. You're always being pulled back into it. So let's see this really clearly. An orphan from God is isolated from God's love. And what you're left with is pride. Your attempt to succeed or your failure in succeeding. You're isolated from satisfaction. All the things that you see out in the world that you use to try and get that feeling of satisfaction, not just pleasure, but satisfaction, are meant to lead you to the giver of those gifts, the one who will actually satisfy you. My, my little girl had a birthday yesterday. She opened up all these presents, and we sat down, and we had our same conversation that we've been having every year since she could understand my language, where I say to her, listen, you're going to open presents. That's great. But you have to be way more thankful 
for the person than for the gift. And we think through it together. We go through it slowly. And I say to her, what would it be like to have the toy but not the Grammy? That's our word for grandmother. I don't know if you got that or not. Have the toy and not the Grammy. Well, and she doesn't even hesitate, to your credit. She doesn't even hesitate. She says, no, I'd rather have Grammy. Of course. And doesn't it make the toy even greater to know that while you're playing with it, you not only get the joy of the toy, you get the joy of knowing that Grammy gave you that toy because she loves you. Yeah, that's better. Good. So we're not going to put our joy, our heart's delight on toys, but on love. Got that? She says yes, who knows. But over time, hopefully, she'll start to look up from the gift to the giver. Separated from God, we have an isolation from that satisfaction. We have an isolation from the future. I don't know how you have hope for tomorrow if you're either hoping in your performance or convinced that there won't really be a tomorrow. Here's a brief kind of thumbnail of two of the conversations I had. One, these are real people, so I'm going to change their names. I'm going to go and call them Jerry and George. One was with this guy, Jerry. And Jerry doesn't really believe that there is a God. He certainly doesn't believe that there's any kind of afterlife. And so meaning in his life now is trying to just do as best you can with what you got. Enjoy and get as much as you can because the clock's running out. George was raised in a religion. And I mean that in the gospel versus religion sense. He was raised with a group of people who said, here's a standard of right and wrong. And you're either going to do it or you're not. You're either going to be good or you're going to be bad. And George failed. Because he failed, all the good things in the world, all the things that that religion told him were good, didn't really seem like they had access to him. So he went and found pleasure other places, and he got into a lot of addiction. And now, he's a couple years sober, things are turning around for him. But the only option he has is to start climbing that ladder again. So he's starting a business and he's getting his life kind of put back together. And so the people in that religion will start to call him respectable. He's just turning from one form of slavery to another. I want to think with you about those two forms of life in this world. Because I think Jerry and George make up a great deal of what's getting pulled and pushed in the church. See, with Jerry, we talked about this guy, Cormac McCarthy. He's a, a writer. He's written stuff that has become movies. There was one that was called No Country for Old Men with Tommy Lee Jones. Don't know if you saw it. Interesting, kind of a weird ending, Coen Brothers. I don't know. If you don't like it, maybe go read the book. There's another one, though, that he did called The Road. He won the Pulitzer Prize for this novel, and it became a, a movie with Viggo Mortensen and all kinds of other people. And the reason we were talking about the road was because he said he felt like that was a great metaphor for existence. The story of that book is that there's a man and his son, and they're going from a colder place to a warmer place where hopefully it'll be easier to survive. And the reason that it's not possible for them to survive is that they live in like a post-apocalyptic America. Something has happened, and society is just broken down completely. So getting from point A to point B, there's no reliable source of food. There's no secure transportation. As they walk from one place to another, they're worried about these bands of marauding cannibals who are going to steal them and eat them. And as they're walking, the man is sick, and he knows he's terminal. He's just hoping he can get his young son to a place where maybe the son can survive for a minute. Now, 
That is not a wonderful place to live. That's a terrible story, and I hopefully won't have to watch that movie ever. That'll be a sad night if I ever have to watch it. What's more sad, though, than living in a universe where you think that's a great metaphor for everything? That this life is just about existing as long as you possibly can, maybe taking care of the next generation as well as you possibly can, and watching out because it's dog-eat-dog. So either you eat them or they eat you. That's the world Jerry lives in. So both of these guys, you tell them, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In the one place, George is going to say, listen, you may not do great at it, but here are the rules. And the other, Jerry's going to say, just leave me alone and let me have my pleasures. I'm going to leave you alone to seek your pleasures. Instead, the gospel comes in and Jesus does something totally different. Galatians 4 again. What does he do? How does he interact with us as orphans? Does he leave us alone or does he shout across the void a series of rules for us to follow? No. He comes to be with us. When the fullness of time had come, God sends forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He comes to find us. He comes to adopt us. He comes to bring us to himself. He doesn't just shout out a prescription for change and we either do it or we fail. He doesn't say that this world is all there is. Do what you can. He promises a love that never ends. And he comes to bring that love to you. It's evidence for another place. You're not isolated from a hope for the future. You're not isolated from love. You're not isolated from satisfaction. Why? Because he's brought those things to you. Jerry lives in a world where there is no ultimate meaning. And it's something that's been thought of by people for a really long time. Shakespeare, it's a little highbrow maybe. Think about it though. Macbeth, his wife dies, and this is the first thing he sort of throws out there. He has this monologue, Macbeth does, and he says, out, life, life, out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts, uh, struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Why does he say that? Because he has no God. He's not been encountered by somebody who says, no, there is something past death. The other version of the same idea is from a TV show that was on Fox a while back called House MD. I don't know if you're familiar. But the idea was that this guy was super brilliant. He could solve any kind of medical puzzle that you put before him, but he was a nihilist, so he never cared about the actual patient. And the whole story and series arc of this show is not just, can House learn to love? Answer, he can't. But is there any meaning in life if you don't have God? Spoiler, the grand conclusion to the show is that there's not. It's not possible to have meaning if there is no God. Death makes fools of us all. And the way that it expresses that is the very last scene is House and his buddy Wilson on motorcycles riding off into the sunset. And while they're riding off, there's a song being sung by Wilson's dead girlfriend. He's just sort of imagining it. I don't know. It's poetic. 
but she's singing this song from a guy named Louis Prima, and he says, enjoy yourself, it's later than you think. They're riding off into the sunset to find what pleasure they can before night comes. Enjoy yourself, it's later than you think. Death makes fools of us all unless someone has beaten death. Do you see the picture that's being drawn there? Jesus coming to live under the law and be for us what we should have been in him. Now, not only does he die the death that we should have died, but he rises from the grave, that resurrection that convinced James that his brother was really real. That resurrection gives us, gives us a hope to give Jerry, to say, you don't have to live like that. That hopelessness that I hope for even just a half second you, through empathy, existed in, doesn't have to be his life, and it certainly doesn't have to be his eternity. God, through Christ, has made a way for that orphan to be received into God's love, to be received into God's hope. How? He needs to know Jesus. If he will receive Jesus. Then, verse 7, he's no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Look at the blessings that he's getting. Totally accepted. Totally loved. Receiving from God. Whatever God gives as a... uh, Look at this. The word heir. You think about the word heir. If you got a letter tomorrow from a lawyer saying you were an heir to some beloved passing of, I don't know, an uncle or a great uncle or something, and you are now an heir, what are you excited about? You're hoping you're going to get something. Hopefully it's not an old like shoe collection or something. Hopefully it's a car or a house or some assets, something you can use. Because you're an heir. You want to receive the stuff. What are we, this heirs in Christ? Heirs to God in Christ? How can we possibly be that when God's already died through Christ and come back? What would, what would be the stuff? Well, it's not stuff. Remember last week, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we talked about when God returns, when Christ returns, he's returning and he's bringing what? Is it just stuff? We have feasts here and it's better feasts in heaven. We have music here and it's better music in heaven. No. It's to marvel at him. On the day when he comes to be glorified in the saints and to be marveled at among all who believed. He makes us into his sons. Now, I had to take a minute and just think about this because it's really crazy that there's not some sort of in-between solution. The Bible is saying that you and I are totally separated from God in our sin. We are what Jesus was. When God put our sin on him, Jesus was executed as a criminal. That's what we deserved, meaning that we should be in that electrocution chair. We are condemned by God as sinners. And yet, in Christ, God makes us sons and heirs. He doesn't just forgive us. He doesn't just set us up to kind of go do our own thing. He actually makes us sons and heirs. Doesn't that seem like a pretty wild set of options? I'm either executed as a criminal or written into the will. If you're the judge, you've got all kinds of ideas of stuff to do with this scumbag rather than bring him into your house. 
Why are those the only two options? Because there really is only one choice. It's either Him or not Him. You're either not His and you're separated from Him forever, or you call Him Abba and Father and you are brought into the love dance that's been going on in the Trinity from eternity past. You are either an orphan or you are adopted and a son. You have to see that. You have to take it apart and put it back together. You have to enjoy it so thoroughly that you understand it so deeply that when Jesus says to you, go and do to others the way you want to be treated, you can say, well, I know how I like to be treated. I like to be forgiven. I like to be loved. I like to be adopted. I like to be provided for. I love to be cared for. So, look out into the world and see the brokenness. You are connected to God like a person is connected to their father because he's trying to teach you in fatherhood what he's really like. That enacted parable is a perfect example of the gospel. So, in a world where that's broken and there's people called orphans that don't have moms and dads, go and be their moms and dads. Fix that gospel picture. What's the other big picture that we have of the gospel in Scripture? It's Christ and the church, like a man and his wife. Marriage is supposed to be this clear picture of the gospel. Isn't that interesting then that James says, go out and fix that picture of the gospel. Go and find these widows and provide for them so that that picture is still clear. That picture is still seen. That's what he has done for us. We need to now go and do likewise. And one more, you didn't need it, but one more incredible blessing here. In Acts chapter 20, as Paul is praying over the elders in Ephesus, these men who are going to go and lead the church and hopefully lead all kinds of churches out of Ephesus, but Paul's got to go, so he's not staying any longer, but he's praying for them. This is a farewell prayer. And as he's talking to these Christian pastors who are going to go out and try and lead people to Jesus and suffer the slings and arrows of this world as they try and just build God's church as well as they can, It's going to be awful. It's going to hurt. It's going to be stoned and beaten with rods just like Paul was. And yet he says, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we can help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. It is very blessed to receive this gospel. I want you now to enjoy the experience that God has set out for you in giving this gospel. You give it by your word to the spiritual orphan. Praise God. Do that every day, every way. But do it even physically, a lived out analogy of that gospel picture by caring for the orphans of this world. We don't just need your pennies, but we'll take them. We need you to have a heart that really understands that you have been adopted by God and then is now able to take that love out to others who need that exact same thing. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I pray right now that you would help us to see, help us to understand that we would actually be adopted by you, that we would be your sons and your daughters. 
I pray, Father, please, that if we really understand that gospel, we would be so overwhelmed by it that there's nothing we could do but to hand it out, to see it played out over and over and over again in miniature as we share your gospel. Taking whatever people are going to give us, Lord, whether it's wrath or just indifference, in order to continue to preach and preach and preach and strengthen the weak. Lord, let us agree that it is definitely more blessed to give even than to receive. Pray these things in your son's holy name.